Thank you for joining us on a very, very special edition of the Comics Pals. We are here today to to interview an absolute icon in the industry, a legend who has written and been a part of some tremendously great works. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw a few of the names out there. All right, uh, Preacher, Punisher, The Boys, Tankies, String Bags. Uh, hitman it, it, the list goes on and on and on we are joined today by garth ennis thank you so much for being a part of this my pleasure it's 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 actually amazing because you know a lot of a lot of your work i think is is being recognized um for for how great it always has been i think a lot of people have tuned into the boys and are and are seeing you know, what you have accomplished in comics through that show and then working their way back. Uh, today, we're going to be focusing primarily on your work with uh, Dead Reckoning, the String Bags and the Tankies. Um, but you have had such a tremendous career. I would love to ask you, um, you know, looking back on all the, the great things that you've done and contributed to the industry, how does it feel to see your work being sort of consumed the way it is now with the success of the boys and, and frankly, everything else, the Punisher, et cetera. Mm. Um, well, it's very nice. Uh, I mean, I've, I've never really had any complaints about the way my stuff is performed commercially. I've always been happy enough mm. with the way it's gone over, but there's no doubt that a shot in the arm like this uh, is very, very helpful. Um, the success of the boys, I, I think uh, it's not the first time I've said this, um, is really heavily dependent on the success of the superhero movies and TV shows that have seen that particular genre work its way into the mainstream, educating non-comics audiences to the idea of a shared superhero universe. Mm. You know, you're walking down the street and Spider-Man swings past and then you turn the corner and the Hulk rampages across the street and you know that the Avengers are headquartered somewhere in the city and you won't be surprised if Dr. Octopus attacks that night. They're all in the same world. Well, I think once you get a mainstream audience acclimated to that idea um, through TV, through film, then it's not such a leap for a show like The Boys, which is set in just such a universe, very different kinds of superheroes, but it's set in just that kind of world. And it's not as alien to that mainstream audience I mentioned. Um, that that's been hugely helpful. Uh, otherwise, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you might have found that that mainstream TV audience just wouldn't have been remotely receptive to it. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I think that, you know, yeah, people's familiarity with superheroes makes the boys something that they can accept because of how it plays with all of those ideas, but it, it turns them on, on, on their head in a lot of ways. And I think that's, I mean, that's what I've appreciated about it so much. Um, but I, I, I really want to, want to talk to you about, you know, these newer projects that you've worked on, mm -hmm. uh, with, with dead reckoning. So I, I would like to start with the tankies. Okay. Um, I really, I found a lot to enjoy in this book and I didn't know what to expect only because uh you know war stories and comics is not something that i've really ever read before i've obviously we've all read like you know captain america and portions of that or different books the punisher might take place in environments like that but a, a book that's solely focused on on war is new to me at least um but there was so much heart in it and uh characters who i was able to to connect with um, so you, you clearly based on some of the back matter are very, very familiar with, uh, world war two, obviously, but I think it demonstrated to me that you have maybe a fascination with some of the wars that have taken place. Uh, wh why is that? Um, well, just like, just like everyone else, um, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, the comics that I grew up on. It's just that for me, that meant war comics 
Um, and the you've probably heard of the British title, 2000 AD, Judge Dredd and so on. Um, and just due to a quirk of the, uh, the distribution in the part of Northern Ireland I grew up in, I never really saw American superhero comics, not regularly, not with any kind of coherent distribution that allowed me to enjoy them on a regular basis. So to me, they were just something that you saw occasionally, whereas the British mainstream titles, uh, which in the early 80s still involved a lot of war comics, uh, were freely available. Uh, and so while everyone else is reading DC and Marvel's output, I'm reading this British stuff and the war comics. Um, what's interesting about those is that if you allow for the hyperbole, the natural hyperbole of war comics of the time, the larger than life aspect, um, they are ultimately based on real events. They're set in the First and Second World War, the Vietnam War and so on. And these are things that happened. And, and as a little kid, coming to understand that, realizing that these stories were closer to reality in a way that Judge Dredd in 2000 AD and the superheroes that I find out about later weren't and could never be. Um, I think that sort of tripped a switch in my imagination. Um, the films and TV shows that I watched as well, the big war movies of the 60s and 70s that were, you know, staple Sunday afternoon viewing for my generation. Um, that led me to, to an interest in military history, I suppose, at a very young age. And then flash forward, when I get a chance to write my own comics, it's not long before I have a go at war comics because, like everyone else, I'm interested in the material I grew up on and, and putting my own spin on that. Were your, were your influences like uh, DC Thompson? Did you uh, get yeah. those? Uh, I got a lot of their stuff. They published that uh, series Commando, which I think yes. survives to this day. You know, 60-page yes. uh, black and white stories, A5 format. Um, there was a similar series from another publisher, uh, IPC, called uh, The Picture Libraries, War Picture Library, Battle Picture Library. But first and foremost was a weekly anthology called Battle. Uh, and Battle, uh, Battle was the one that I think put a lock on my imagination from a very early age. Uh, stories like Charlie's War and Johnny Red, um, the Sarge, Rat Pack, a lot of this stuff has has been reprinted or, or will be reprinted soon. It was, um, a lot of it was created by the people who, who did 2000 AD, uh, John Wagner, Pat Mills, um, Alan Grant, uh, and lesser-known writers for an American audience like Alan Hebden, Tom Tully, Jerry Finley Day. These guys were formed the backbone of British comics at that time, and because war comics were so popular, they did an awful lot of work in that genre. So, um, I, I had read some some previous interviews with you, and and you had said that you know, obviously, again, the the war stories were a were a, a big thing for you growing mm -hmm. up, but also there was a lot of that like kind of gunfighter type character, like yeah. a dread. And yeah. I guess I wanted to ask, like, what was it about that genre that you gravitated toward as a kid? Like, was it just because those were the books that were as prevalent as, like, superhero comics are to Americans? Or was there something about them that you really, like, connected with for some reason? Yeah, um, I think, first of all, yes, you're quite right. It was what was available and without uh, uh, too much in the way of superhero titles being available. Uh, I glommed on to, to what was there. Uh, and of course, when you pick these things up, age seven or eight, they do get that lock in your imagination that never goes away. They also, um, I think, especially characters in 2000 AD, like Judge Dredd, Strontium Dog, and so on, the gunfighter characters, as you say, they, um, I think they struck a note because they weren't a million miles away from the movies I was enjoying, uh, I mean, the Clint Eastwood, uh, Dirty Harry character obviously comes to mind. Judge Dredd was, I don't think it's any big secret, based partly on Harry. He's a kind of a future version of the, the traditional tough cop uh, taken to extremes. Um, and so that's where it comes from. I mean, that's that's why I find The Punisher so easy to write. I've often said that he, he feels like... Um, 
a British comic character who was born on the wrong side of the Atlantic by mistake. He's he's <laughs> one that isn't like the others. He's just a guy, and he uses guns rather than superpowers. Um, and I think that's that's why it's so easy for me to slot into that particular mindset because he reminds me so much of the characters I grew up on. I was struck reading this by how real it felt. And, you know, obviously in comics, there's there's oftentimes a, a feeling of, yeah, this is happening, but it's kind of goofy, you know, like Spider-Man swinging around and, you know, it's, it's not meant to be to be taken literally. Um, but this this is this was. And for me, watching war movies or, you know, looking at f- actual footage of war is kind of like staring at the sun. Like I, I, I it's like harsh. Um, and this book dredged up those same kinds of feelings for me, but what it also did was it had characters who were able to find moments of, of, of levity, I guess, mm-hmm. within that. And that was such a, it felt like such a tightrope. Uh, how do you, how do you walk that line? Um, well, it, to deal with the question of humor, um, it is a survival mechanism. It's a very old human survival mechanism, and it comes up in war all the time. When you read, uh, when you do your research and you read the memoirs and you read the regimental histories and so on, you, you do find people injecting humor because otherwise, considering the, the catastrophic horror of the situations they're facing, they'd probably go nuts. They wouldn't be able to handle it, so that they need that release valve. Uh, there's a writer I like, a novelist called Derek Robinson, writes a lot of military fiction and uh, he he once said that if you take the humor out of a situation if you extract the humor and throw it away you're not making it more true you're doing the exact opposite because you're taking away that very important human release valve that need to crack a joke to find the funny side and what would otherwise uh, affect you in a very negative way mentally um as to as to how I walk that particular line, I find that injecting as much um, real life experience that I that I get from these memoirs and histories and so on helps. The one of the things I like about war stories, reading uh, reading this this kind of military history, particularly personal accounts and so on, is that you get that stuff that absolutely defies belief that you could not make up, that if you invented it, would simply be be thrown out the window. People wouldn't wouldn't buy it for a second. But because it has that veracity that comes from real life, that can't make it up thing, um, it it helps the story along. Um, there's a bit somewhere in the story where um, our hero's tank is lining up a shot at a German one, only for them to suddenly sink into the ground because... Um, they're in the middle of. They're in a ruined factory where um, it's a, it's actually a sugar factory where molasses is made, and they've gone through the floor into a giant vat of treacle, uh, and their tank has sunk in it. And that is real. That actually happened. Um, there is a photograph of one of those Sherman tanks, sort of three quarters submerged on its side in a gigantic vat of molasses. Um, and it said that apparently the accompanying infantry found this extremely amusing at the at the tank crew's expense. And you can just imagine the guys having to clamber out through the, the hatches as hot molasses pours into the interior of the tank. Now, I, I switched that to combat and actually had them lining up a shot, as I say, on the Germans at the time. Um, but the, the essential idea holds you. You can't believe it's happening, but it's the fact that it did that gives it its power. Yeah, and 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 there were a few examples of that that you that you laid out in in the back matter. Mm. Uh, I was I was struck by the the commander who waved mm. at his enemies, the the German uh, uh, SS. Uh, uh, he was, I guess, a captain. Yeah, um, right, commander. Yeah, he 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 waved. He came out of his tank and he waved at people, and you know it felt like the kind of mark that you might add to a character to add, to give them a depth or something for people to kind of hang on to, but that's a real thing. Yes. Yes. That, that was, um, that was taken from an incident during the Normandy fighting. Actually, uh, uh, 
um, where uh, and it's one of those illustrations of how much more effective the German tanks could be than the uh, than the Allied vehicles, where uh, a small German unit carved up an entire British squadron, I think of a dozen or so tanks, and as the British survivors were pulling their dead and wounded out of their burning tanks and running like hell, uh, one of the Germans simply waved uh, as as his tank drove away. And uh, you can imagine the horrific frustration uh, and sheer hatred that that would breed in those British soldiers. And there, there they were, utterly impotent, unable to do anything about this. Such was the perception um, of the, the Anglo-American tank crew at the time, the, the feeling of, of sheer impotence and um, inferiority. So that actually brings me to uh, something I was really interested in where when you are basing these stories off of, you know, some real life crews like you did in um, in string bags or, you know, like some of these real life events that you just you know told us about, how do you balance wanting to portray, you know, events or, or relevant people as they were versus the way that you want to make those changes to, you know, I- influence the story that you're trying to tell and tell the best narrative possible? Yeah. Um, essentially, w- what I do uh, is to fictionalize things. Um, in the string bugs, I avoided uh, employing any of the actual participants in those battles. The characters appear from time to time, they get a line of dialogue, but the story is not about them. The story is about the three fictional swordfish crew, uh, Archie, Ollie, and Pops. Um, the reason is that, first of all, it allows you a certain room to maneuver. You, you want to present the historical events as accurately as you can, but you don't want to fall into that dry documentary effect that a, a, a lot of um, true life reportage can in comics. There's, there's a particular sin I always like to avoid, and documentary comics usually fall into it, and it's when you have a caption telling you what you're already seeing in the picture. I hate that. I, I've always hated that. So you you want to avoid bogging the story down in that dry documentary style. But at the same time, these are real people. They may be gone now, but there's a degree of respect here, I think, that's required. And what you want to avoid is you want to avoid attributing your own motivations and characterizations that you've chosen to real people. That isn't fair. It's not fair for me to take from the string bags, for instance, uh, Lance Kiggle or uh, Eugene Esmond and give them uh, the opinions and the motivations and so on that I want them to have. Um, so I create three fictional characters. I involve them in the historically realistic and hopefully accurately portrayed events, but I don't make any of their actions decisive. Uh, I don't have them dropping any of the torpedoes that cripple the Italian battleships or put the the vital torpedo into the Bismarck steering gear. I don't have them doing any of the things uh, that real people did, any of the specific things that real people did uh, during the Channel Dash. And I feel that that strikes a balance between the necessity of storytelling to, to move a good a good story along, uh, but but maintaining respect for the, the historical participants. To that, one of the things that I was struck by, you know, you talk about respect and, and sort of honoring these people who really lived. I also felt that you were respecting and honoring what it what it appears to be like to be a soldier in that, you know, you, you mentioned several times how, you know, in string bags and tankies, these people don't have the proper equipment a lot of the times. Uh, the tanks that the, you know, as you say, Anglo-American um, soldiers had access to were not the best. So, uh, some of their, their armor wasn't the best. And, you know, you don't shy away from those things either because they're equally as true. And it it opened my eyes to some of the realities of war that aren't necessarily apparent when you don't do the research or or when this is not something that you're generally exposed to. Um, how important was it for you to portray with accuracy even those realities? Well, I, 
to, to use the example you mentioned, um, it was important to me to show the feelings that the British tank crews had during the Normandy fighting, which was nasty, close-in, claustrophobic, uh, very vicious combat. Um, not what they trained for. They thought it was going to be wide-open planes, char- squadrons of tanks charging across open ground, maneuvering like ships at sea. Uh, Normandy, and I've been there, is full of little sunken lanes and bocage, which um, bocage is very thick 10-foot hedgerows um, that have been there for hundreds of years. It sounds, it doesn't sound like much. You would think a tank could just drive through it, but to get through what is effectively a series of interlinked trees, the tank has to kind of rear up as it punches through. And to do that, it exposes its belly. And if anyone's waiting on the other side with an anti-tank gun or a rocket launcher, which the Germans usually were because they were very good at defensive fighting, that's that tank doomed. That's an example of the kind of thing uh, I, I wanted to get right. And I wanted to combine that with the perceptions of those crews that their own tanks weren't up to par. Now, what they didn't know was that the German tanks, the Tigers, the Panthers, and the various derivatives of those were, one, much more rare than they thought because they were extremely labor-intensive and hard to build many of. And dozens of Tigers and Panthers were built for the hundreds of Shermans and Churchills that were pouring off Allied production lines. Um, effectively, the German tanks if they didn't break down, and they often did, you, you when you see the tiger in the story, it spends a good deal of the story out of action. The same is true of the, the king tiger in the second one, which I think actually breaks down in the, the final battle. Um, but if you're an allied tanker, of course, all you know is that if you come face to face with one of these monsters, your gun can't punch through its armor, whereas its gun can get through yours no trouble at all. And then you're stuck with the horror of uh, trying to escape a burning tank. It was these perceptions that the Allied tank crews lived with that I wanted to get across like this, that it didn't really matter if the big strategic picture was, eventually we'll outnumber them and our tanks will keep going when there's breakdown. Because in the moment, what they see, what they feel is total inferiority. Yeah, it felt like a, it felt like a legend. Like, uh, you know, if you're talking about, I like a Godzilla, right, or or something like that. It felt it felt very much like they had created a myth around these these tanks and these weapons of war that wasn't necessarily true, but it was true for them, which is almost what yeah. matters more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in fact, there were instances where Allied commanders had to suppress. Uh, information about the German tanks getting out and and even, frankly, lie about them uh, and say we must tell the troops that the guns on our tanks can cope with the Tiger and the Panther because other, otherwise morale will suffer and they just won't get into their tanks at all. To the um, sticking around the accuracy question, when it comes to the research, uh, we'd interviewed Wayne Van Sant um, mm. on All Quiet on, about like All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, Katusha, he, he sort of mentioned that um, you can read uh, about a person's life. You can uh, look at all of the the detail around maps, around strategies, etc. But right. uh, sometimes you have to go visit like a square and 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 live that experience to whatever extent that you can. What what are those moments for you when it comes to that research? Do you do those kind of visits? Do you interviews? Um, I, I have I have actually been to these places. Um, I, like I said, I was in Normandy a, a couple of years ago, and uh, I went to um, Hill One Twelve, which was the site the site of some very savage fighting between the the British and the Germans. And um, my wife and I actually met a. Um, uh, a very elderly gentleman who uh, turned out to have been the local mayor at one point, but was also a little boy during the Normandy fighting. I think he was nine in 1944. Wow. So now he was extremely old, but he li- he liked to visit the battlefield, he said, just because he liked to tell people about the, the experience, really, to, I suppose, to keep the stories alive. Now, my French is dreadful, but I could follow it up to a point. My wife's French is very good, and she did most of the translation. But I was listening to the old guy, and he talked about um, 
he pointed to the top of the hill and he said, Les Char Alamad, which is, pardon my French, haha, but it's as, good, it's as good as I can do, the German tanks. And then he, he pointed down to the bottom of the hill and he, he said, Les Char Anglais, which may, and I thought, oh God, so that means the British are coming up the hill. And you look out over this quite gentle slope, uh, not, a, not a craggy mountain peak, you know, a reasonably gentle slope. But you do understand, standing on top of the hill, that you'd be able to see everyone for miles around. And if you had the big guns, it would be a shooting gallery. And then I heard him say, uh, Le Char Tigre. And I thought, Tiger Tank. And that was when I realized I was standing at the site of a massacre because the British would have had to come straight up the hill, no cover, nothing to hide behind, uh, perfect point perfect firing positions for the Germans at the top, straight into these, these big German tanks with their huge 88 millimeter guns and get carved up. And that is exactly what happened. Um, he also told me, um, not so much a, a, a story for research or anything, but he also told us that afterwards, after the tank battle was over, the Germans had been worn down, the British had finally taken the hill and, and the, the fighting had moved on further east as the Germans retreated. Um, there were several dozen knocked out tanks lying around on the slope of the hill, um, most of them British. Now they were supposed to have been made safe, uh, ammunition removed, fuel drained, all that. Uh, but the retreating uh, troops would have been in a hurry, so would the advancing troops, and they never really had time to make everything completely safe. And one day, this guy, I remember he was nine years old, he and his friends were playing on one of these tanks when his mother appeared and called to him, you know, come on, Jean, dinner time. Uh, oh, Mom, come on, let me stay with my friends and play. No, dinner time. So he left, and of course, 10 minutes later, there's a God Almighty explosion as one of these tanks blows itself into a million bits and killed all his little nine and 10 year old friends stone dead. Um, wow. Which really oh brings it home to you, you know, that it really brings it home to you that once the battle finishes, the dying doesn't necessarily stop, the, the debris and the detritus of war stays there for months, perhaps years, and is, you know, is almost never completely safe. Um, and it tore this community apart, went right when they thought at last the fighting's over and we're safe now. So that was quite a sobering moment. Wow. Uh, yeah, even just me listening to you tell that story is, um, you know, that's that's horrible. It's, it's mm. awful. And I think that it's easy to forget or discount or not think about the the, the lives that are you know irre irrevocably changed mm. by wars that you know happen and we look at we look back on them as things that happened but there were real people there yeah. and you were able to bring that to life in these stories i'm i'm reminded as you as you told that story uh a, 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 a similar but not the same occurrence in the tankies mm -hmm. where uh this this child yeah. and his family are you know they're they're in the woods and um you know they just they just shoot into the woods and and the idea is that his family was there and they they all they all they all died yeah um, and now he's an orphaned yeah that's um that was take another story taken from a real event. I mean, for, for at that point in the war, uh, as it's dragging out to its conclusion, uh, early 1945, the Allies are in Germany. The end is in sight, but the war's not over yet. And everyone has that feeling, I don't want to be the last one to die. I don't want to get killed now. And people are... Uh, perhaps being even more cautious than they were. So for a tank crew who hears something rustling in the undergrowth at night, opening fire with every machine gun they've got, is it's probably a wise precaution. All it takes is one guy creeping around with a rocket launcher and your tank's blown away uh, and you're dead. So what they do is, by the lights of the time, quite legitimate on but unfortunately of course what they don't know is there's just a family out looking for firewood um the uh, the story i took that from the british tank commander uh, in real life said that afterwards um a little boy or a little girl came out and stared at him and said you've killed my mother and 
he had no idea what to say. And 50, 60 years later, when he was telling the story and who wrote the book, the story, he still had no idea what to say. It was, in a lot of ways, the defining moment of his life. Um, he'd been put in a situation he, he didn't ask for. Um, like so many of those soldiers, he was conscripted and didn't, you know, otherwise he would have been a banker or a poet or, or whatever, um, or a writer or something. But instead he found himself commanding a tank towards the end of the war, um, in the middle of the last, the last winter of the war with Germany. And he did this terrible thing purely out of self-preservation and was left, was left with it to deal with for the rest of his life. That's that's haunting. That actually uh, takes me to a, another question. I was interested in reading this, where and also in another um, interview I had seen, where you had commented how there's like so many stories about like D-Day, right? Mm. For example, World War II especially is such a well-worn area mm. for storytellers. Um, so I really appreciated that in both of these the stories that we're we're talking about today. Like I, they dealt with areas of the conflict or like specific things about the conflict that I had never learned about in school or seen in a movie or something like that. So I guess what was it about these two subject areas that were so fascinating to you that you felt like you wanted to write about them? And, and I guess in general, when you're writing about war, like what is it about a conflict or an area of, you know, um, a military organization that, you know, really inspires you in that way? Yeah. Um, it's a variety of things. Sometimes it'll be um, uh, an aspect of the war that's been overlooked. Um, everyone knows about D-Day, the armies charging up the beaches, establishing uh, the, uh, the forces of liberation in France. But what they don't know is that it took another seven weeks of extremely hard fighting for the Anglo-American forces to get out of the Normandy beachhead. Um, simply because they came face to face with the Germans at their most intransigent. Um, and there were, there were these problems with the terrain and the tactics that, that I've talked about. Um, beyond that, it, it can be all sorts of things. Sometimes it'll be a single anecdote um, some, or, or an incident. Um, sometimes it'll be a remark that somebody's made. Um, sometimes it'll even be... Uh, something like a song, a piece of verse. I, years ago, I wrote a story called D-Day Dodgers uh, in the War Story series, which was about a satirical song that British troops sang in Italy when they found out that um, they, uh, in their particular theater of war, they were being overlooked by, uh, or they, they thought they were being overlooked and even denigrated by the folks at home. It can be a particular aeroplane I've always liked, a particular tank. Uh, it can be, sometimes it can be just my curiosity about what would happen if X met Y mm. with the tankies. Um, I, I didn't know that there would be more after the first series, the first three episode story when I wrote them. But I think I probably liked the character of Styles so much that I realized I, I wanted to do more with him. And on other occasions, um, ideas will come from the most unlikely places. I, I was in Seville in Spain uh, almost 20 years ago. Uh, my wife and I were there for her birthday and there was a huge cathedral in that town. I mean, a vast medieval cathedral, huge stone pillars and so on. And I can remember walking around and thinking, my God, this place is gigantic. You could, you could drive a tank around in here. Ting. And that's why the second tanky story ends in a tank battle inside a huge cathedral with giant stone pillars collapsing and so on. Um, so it's all kinds of things. Everything goes into the mix. Uh, sticking to the the tankies there and, and Styles in particular, what was it about his character that wanted that you wanted to continue to follow through from World War II into Korea? Um, I, I think I like Styles because um, he's just such a bad-tempered, knobbly, <laughs> little grumpy, little grotesque of a guy. He's a great, classic Carlos Esquera character. Um, and that's something I should say here. The success of the Tankies uh, really, really revolved heavily around Carlos' ability to portray the characters. 
you are in a tank story. You are talking about four or five guys, usually white, all in the same uniform, all in the same gear, all with the same radio headsets in the gloomy interior of a tank. And that means, and, and when each guy is drawn at his position, there are just a couple of steel walls tight to his side and front. So for an artist, that's a real challenge. And you need someone who can make each of those guys a real individual. And Carlos had that ability. Uh, oh my goodness. He, he, he was a master of that kind of thing. I still miss him for, for that and many other reasons. Um, but nowhere did he succeed more in the Tankies than with Styles, who is who, who just instantly that guy you know, that bad-tempered little bastard you know. You don't really want them around, but when trouble comes along, you want them on your side. Um, so I liked him from the get-go. I, I liked I liked him in the first three because he's just permanently on edge. He's permanently being wound up. Eventually, he does snap. I figured that. As time went by, and that's one of the reasons I went, I did another story. He he wouldn't exactly mellow, but he'd become wilier, and he'd have more of a sense of a mission. And once he's given a, a weapon, the Sherman Firefly with the gun that can't actually defeat the German tanks. Once he's given that weapon, he's going to develop more of a sense of purpose. Of course, that's going to lead to a kind of an obsession, and that's going to lead to ultimately to catastrophe. And that meant that I always did feel the need, even though that was essentially Styles' second world war over, I felt the need to go back to Styles one more time in the Korean War story and see if we could resolve this for him the way his obsession had led to disaster, success, but disaster at the same time, and see if he could maybe find a way to live with himself. It was around about that time I, I read an account of the battle mentioned in the third story in the korean war story and i just find that extremely inspiring um partly the way the gloucester regiment held the hill partly the way the british charged those tanks down that highway to try and rescue the other regiments and i thought this would be a perfect place to get to get styles back to war one last time i was really taken by how personal things were for styles mm. because a lot of times the way we talk with the way we talk about war mm -hmm. is very impersonal uh generally you don't hear a ton about individual soldiers generally you don't hear a ton about why they were fighting or 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 anything like that and getting to really dig in with this person who you know had some really rough things happen to him um and see that he was a, a little bit obsessed kind of with this desire to get revenge um and it and it it burned through people people that were um that trusted him to sort of protect them and to have their best interests in mind and he did to a degree and we see that um but we also see that he was willing to forego those things when it came to getting his revenge um and it put a personal stamp on a on a on a war that doesn't have that for 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 me you know um yeah why was that important to you well i think uh in comics and in a lot of adventure fiction we tend to like we tend to like the special unit with the secret mission the guys who go at the small group of guys who go out and do the thing that has a real effect on the war, that shortens the war, that blows up the secret installation, that kills the particular Nazi general. That, um, But for the vast majority of combatants in, in World War II or any other war, that's not the reality. The reality is just one job after another, uh, all horrific, but somehow blurring into one another, another river to cross, another hill to go up, another town to fight through. Um, you're told this will shorten the war, but all you see are your friends getting killed, your own odds getting longer, your chances getting worse. Um, with someone like Styles, whose reality is not the secret mission, who is not part of an elite force, 
who just has one battle after another to fight. I suppose you might say it's it's him ultimately imposing his own meaning on it. Um, he comes to believe that it has to be for something. All these losses that he's seen his unit take, all the guys who've been killed in his tanks under his command, it starts to eat away at him. Um, and there were guys in the war who started to feel that way, who who developed a kind of an obsession, and sometimes it killed them. Um, Styles, I suppose, is my take on them. It's it's me addressing that particular aspect of the war. And I, I really find that to be so sad because you you mentioned how there were a lot of a lot of soldiers who, especially when you compare them to you know the Germans or even the Koreans later on, who don't they're not necessarily talented mm. in, 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 in combat. That's not necessarily their strong suit. And in life, they probably would have gone on to be different things before mm. they went to war. They were doing something else. Um, and so it's almost like your entire life becomes forfeit to this one thing, this horrific nightmarish thing that you now have to focus on and do. Mm -hmm. And even then you're not necessarily that good at it anyway. Mm. Styles is different in that he is good at it um, and he is talented at it. And maybe his personality is such that that's where he should be, but yeah. it takes from you anyway. Yes. Um, and it, and it, 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 it's, it's a very human thing, but it's also dehumanizing, you know? Um, and I, th I thought that was portrayed really well. That worked a lot for me. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where w once you, you give a character that sense of purpose, um, I suppose perhaps in another kind of story, he would become part of some elite unit. He would get taken out and uh, chosen for a, for a special mission, leading a particular group of guys. But that just wasn't the reality, and it's not the kind of war story I generally like. Um, I enjoy what Quentin Tarantino called guys on a mission films. I, I enjoy those, they're good fun. But for so many people, they're just, they're just not the reality of warfare. And I think that's probably been particularly true of the conflicts of the past 20 years. Um, if you think about everything that's happened since 9-11, you could, you could say that probably the one mission uh, that did make that kind of almost Hollywood style difference would be the assassination of bin Laden. The rest of them for the, the, the huge majority of, um, of, of Anglo-American and, and other troops in Afghanistan and Iraq has just been that tour of duty, that thing that you get through, that you survive. I'm sure we've all known guys and uh, uh, people who've, who've been through that. Uh, did they make a difference? Did they make the countries they went to better? Hard to say. Uh, that's, that's a judgment for history. The most they can hope for, I suppose, is their own survival and the survival of their friends. And that's a, that's a stark reality that, you know, again, we're not really confronted by. Uh, and, and, you know, you talk about Hollywood, they make those movies, make it seem as though, soldiers who go away to war are doing something that's so um you know cool i guess for lack of a better term um, glorious it's, yeah it's glo it's glo exactly it's glorious it's it's you know they, they really make it look epic heroic and and well yeah um and you know you may argue that they are heroic for the fact that they're willing to go and do this thing but i think you make a great point in that you know whether it's heroic or not it's probably not going to end gloriously for you. It's probably not going to be something that you go want to go home and, you know, regale your friends and family with these tales. It's probably something you want to be kind of private about. And that even that's something you touch on uh, in the tankies. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's the kind of thing that can leave you, frankly, with a head full of broken glass, uh, as it has for so many people throughout, throughout this conflict. Um, and the last few that... Uh, America and other Western nations have, have been involved in. The more I think we move away from the traditional battlefield, the two armies meeting face to face on the battlefields and into the combat of insurgencies, I think that that's just going to continue.
So you, you probably have, I would say you definitely have more knowledge about, you know, war combat than most people. So what do you think about war? What, what are your thoughts about the, the fact that we do this, the fact that we, you know, send our primarily our young away to kind of go fight these wars that for those individuals don't necessarily have meaning they're 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 given the propaganda and and the things that that kind of make them want to go uh, or there's an inciting incident as we had with 9-11 that inspired an entire generation of young people to say they wanted to go and fight that battle mm-hmm. um but by and large you know it really doesn't have anything to do with them and now they're going to potentially kill people who they have no problem mm-hmm. with in general what are your thoughts about the concept itself the fact that we do it well, um, I should say that all my experience of war is secondhand. It comes from uh, historical re- uh, record. It comes from memoirs. I, I've not been to war. I have no desire to do it. Uh, as for my thoughts on it, well, uh, I, I often think that we all like to say we're anti-war. That's a very popular thing to say. But an alien visitor to our planet looking over the past five or 10,000 years might quibble with that conclusion. I would honestly say that so long as we continue to do business as nation states, so long as those states compete for resources, so long as there are different systems of government, uh, Western democracy, Chinese communism, whatever the hell that is in Russia, um, so long as religions are run to make everything better, ho-ho, so long as each state has its military industrial complex where the production of war materiel brings a profit. So long as those things continue, I think that we will unfortunately continue to have war. Um, If you look at the news today, I'm sure you'll be able to see many places around the world where trouble is brewing, or if if not, it's already boiled over. I don't like the look of things in the Ukraine. Um, some of the Baltic and Scandinavian states are a bit edgy about the way Russia seems to be constantly bumping into them. Um, things in the Middle East, uh, Syria and so on continue to, that, that there's been conflict there really for the past 10 years, 20 if you extend it to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, China is getting more expansionist. America has to sort out exactly where it stands after the Trump era and strike that balance between uh, standing up for democracy, shall we say, and the realities of, of, of international life. So it, it will sadly continue. Um, now, I'm told that statistically, you are far less likely to die in a war today than 100 500, 1,000 years ago, and that's probably true. Um, Society has become more sophisticated, um, more peaceful, essentially, and your chances of survival are better. After all, if it really came to a major conflict nowadays and things went nuclear, which, of course, was the great fear I grew up with being a kid in the Cold War, it would all be over for everyone in a couple of weeks. Um, And so... uh, and so, so long as we avoid that, and we can keep these low-intensity conflicts, uh, keep things from going beyond these low-intensity conflicts, maybe, bleak as it is to say this, that's the best we can hope for. Uh, let's cross our fingers and, and wait and see. Uh, is there, at Pivoting Way a little bit, is, is there something right now, a certain conflict in particular, some sort of craft that you have been sort of obsessing over most recently, something that might inform a future story, if at all? Um, most, of, most of the stuff I, um, uh, I, I'll, I'm going to be writing about will remain in the Second World War. Um, I think that that's largely a function of what I said earlier about the comics I grew up on, the vast majority of which uh, when it comes to war comics, we're set in that conflict. Um, I'm doing a book for Aftershock called The Lion and the Eagle, which is about the British fighting in Burma um, oh. in 1944. 
Um, I want to do a couple more aviation stories that I have ideas for. Um, there'll be another, uh, I can't go into too much detail on this, but there will be another Punisher Vietnam story coming out soon. Um, that, that I suppose is the exception. The others will continue to be um, Second World War stories for the time being, I would say. I want to I want to close with a question that I really love to ask creators, mm. especially those of, of a stature uh, like yours. The industry has changed dramatically since you know you came on the scene, mm -hmm. um, and I want to know what do you think about the state of comics as a whole? You you obviously have carved out a, a, a great space for yourself mm -hmm. um but you know things have changed and i wonder what you think about where we are and kind of where we're going mm. um in a way i'm the wrong person to ask because i don't pay as much attention to the, the rest of the industry as i might as i probably should but um certainly you're right things have changed wildly i mean we've, we've probably gone from when when i started preacher which is really what i made my name with in the the early to mid 90s you might have had what 30 or 40 professional comic writers if that you tended to have the guys who were working for dc the ones at marvel vertigo was its own weird little sort of sidebar uh, and then you had a bunch in the independents and now an editor recently informed me it's probably 10 maybe even 20 times that so the companies have this vast pool of talent all of a sudden that they can rely on um conversely though and uh th this surprised me when when i thought about it um i i do get the sense that things have gotten a little harder for writers and artists um to perhaps reap the full benefit of their work. Um, I'm not sure that the kind of really good creator-owned contracts that I was able to get, that people like Steve Dillon and myself were able to get uh, in the mainstream in the mid-90s are still available. I know DC don't do them anymore, and Marvel never really did. Um, there's Image, of course, uh, but that's such a crapshoot, you know. If you don't, if you don't have that Brian Vaughn or Walking Dead type audience, maybe two or three other people, um, that can become a bit of a quagmire if you're not careful. Um, and then, of course, there's there's just the simple question of um, what what the companies are prepared to pay. I was quite staggered when I heard some of the page rates that Marvel and DC are paying these days to writers and artists. Um, kinds of things that are, are far lower than what a generation of writers like myself, Warren Ellis, Mark Miller, and so on, were able to get for ourselves back in the day. Um, so I, I get the feeling that in a weird way, this um, increase in the, the size of the talent pool has allowed some of the companies uh, maybe a freedom of movement that they shouldn't really have. Um, that's something that I find quite alarming. So it's it's good to see how many people are in the business now, uh, and and doing uh, doing the work that they are. It's just it's a little bit dubious the way Marvel and DC and some of the others are responding to this. I can honestly say we've never had that. We've never had that answer, um, <laughs> or anything near it. Yeah, <laughs> not yet. Not even close. And I think that your your sort of distance from it, at least as it relates to the big two, gives mm -hmm. you a unique perspective. And I appreciate you sharing that with us because that's enlightening. And um, you're right. You know, there are so many creators now. It's, 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 it's amazing how many people do this, but mm -hmm. you also see that there's competition all over the place for space for that's people right. to, you know, even know that you exist. Uh, whereas if your name was on a Marvel or DC book, you know, in the nineties, that was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I think that's something to really take heart, take to heart. Uh, Kickstarter is great. We have these different avenues and channels for creators to try and, and kind of rise above. But, you know, if you're not Kirkman 
or um, you know certain other creators who have been able to come up. Uh, Rick Remender, I'm reminded of, and, and a lot of people like that. It's probably probably pretty tough to make your bank in the industry as it is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, as as I said, I was I was surprised when I heard some of the stories that that I did at the last few cons I attended before you know the pandemic hit and everything. Um, the sense I got was that uh, that this. The, the amount of talent is great for comics, <laughs> but it's also great for publishers in a way that it maybe shouldn't be. Uh, you might say it's almost a buyer's market. Um, so that stopped me in my tracks a bit. I mean, I, I do think that I was very fortunate to establish myself um, with the material that I did at the time I did it. Uh, the 90s was a pretty good time in comics um, a lot of things were starting to come to life. Uh, the internet kicked off, you know, in the iteration that we understand it today, even though you didn't have social media, you had message boards, you had, you had the basics of the internet as it's, as it's now come to be. Uh, and it made, it made uh, life so much easier when it came to people establishing themselves and so on. It just seems that over time, it's it's maybe in a way acted to the detriment uh, of of a lot of people's careers. Um, I do often think that um, if you consider people who write for Marvel and DC but don't have uh, perhaps many creator-owned properties, those people I think can be walking a bit of a tightrope because after all, at the end of the day, you're only as good as your last script. Um, the companies aren't necessarily going to be absolutely cutthroat, but you can run out of friends, you can run out of readership, and if the new hot guy comes along, you can get chopped, and if you don't have your creator-owned material to fall back on, that can be a problem. Whereas, for me, one of the very first things I was told when I started writing uh, comics was own what you create, own as much of what you create as possible. It was actually Alan Moore told me that. Uh, I, I met him when I was 19, and from what I could tell was bitter experience. Um, he, he gave me that piece of advice. And uh, in fact, most of the British writers and artists at the time held that view, and um, they gave me to understand that that was the way to do it. I've, I've always been very grateful for that advice. And I think it shows, based on the, the body of work that you have accumulated, how important and how sage that advice really was because you know you you are i would say one of the rare creators who's known more for their non marvel and dc work than the stuff that they did at the big two um and one of the things that i love so much about that fact is that you have pulled no punches in your stories and it's evident today for anybody listening to this who hasn't read the tankies or hasn't read string bags, you know, but you're a fan of Garth Ennis, it's Garth Ennis. You know, it's, 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 it's the same. It's, if you love his work, you will love these books because the same, uh, uh, I don't mean this the way that it might sound, but the same edge, the same willingness to go there, the same willingness to tell the real truth is present. And that's what I've always loved about your work. And that's what I still love about it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, that's uh, those are very kind words. Um, I I wish I could say I had a plan, but uh, as a friend of as Axel Alonso, the editor at uh, or publisher at Upshot, recently said to me, I am largely a creature of instinct, and I tend to proceed on what feels right, um, what seems right, rather than having a master plan. But I suppose whatever works. Fair enough. Well, I'm excited to see what your instincts tell you to do in the future. Is there anything that you would like to let our listeners know about your upcoming projects or where they can keep up with you? Um, let's let's think. Uh, well, launching in just a couple of weeks' time is the new book from Upshot, uh, Marjorie Finnegan, Temporal Criminal. Um, the new war book from Aftershock, The Lion and the Eagle, will be out sometime next year. So I imagine will that Punisher book? Um, there are various other things which are going to, of course, fly straight out of my head, but, um, those are the ones 
those are the ones that uh, I'm thinking about right now. Um, and they should be with you fairly soon. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Garth. We truly appreciate your time and uh, we can't wait to be able to speak to you again one day. All right, great. Thanks a lot, guys. That was great. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Cheers. Cheers.